Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. I thought for a moment, Ernie, that you were going to uh, tell the story that, uh, which, for which I'm going to be uh, launching from this morning, which would have been totally fine, by the way. I thought it would have been a wonderful way to uh, uh, just bring a prelude to, to the message. You were speaking of a different time when the disciples were in a boat and the waves were uh, choppy and the wind was high and the storm was raging. Uh, in this story today, from this text, we're going to read a different time that the uh, disciples were in a boat. This time, Jesus was not with them. Uh, if, I will have you turn there, and you can go ahead and read it. I don't, I, I'm actually, I'm planning on reading a lot of scripture this morning. Ironically enough, not the launching place from, I'm, I'm going to just tell you the story here. I think it's a familiar story to you, but I'm going to tell you uh, the story as it unfolds here. We'll look at a few verses, make no mistake, but we're going to go a lot of other places this morning with our text. But Jesus actually sends the disciples into the boat by themselves this time. Ernie referred to the time when he was laying in the bottom of the boat and sleeping. But this time, Jesus sent them alone. Now, this comes right on the heels of when uh, Jesus had fed the 5,000. An incredible miracle where God uh, multiplied this, this, this measly little meal this boy had and fed way more people. It, it's, it, I mean, that's an understatement. Way more people than what it should have fed, right? It should have been a meal for perhaps one or maybe two people, but instead it fed 5,000 men plus other people around. And on the heels of that, Jesus sends the disciples into the boat. They're to cross uh, the sea. And he actually is, it says that he stayed there and dismissed the crowds. He sent the crowd away after the disciples. And then he goes up and he withdraws and he spends time with his father in prayer. And it says that the whole time the disciples are in the boat and trying to cross the lake, the wind was their adversary, was not on their side. They're struggling. It's hard work. I remember one time I was in a canoe. I was at Chain of Lakes uh, in uh, Albion, if you know where that's at. And I was in a canoe. And canoeing on a river is, I, I really enjoy because it, it, there's usually going with a current and you have some speed there. Canoeing on a lake is, can be a different story because lakes, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but lakes can be deceiving in how big they are, at least to me. I'm not, a, I, I'm not, I don't, not, I don't spend a lot of time in boats, so maybe it's just I'm a greenhorn at this. But, uh, but the, the, it never looks that far away, right? Like you're not that far away. We were rowing out and uh, paddling this canoe and we looked back a couple times and didn't think we were that far away. And we probably weren't, I don't know, but it's, it didn't seem we were very far away. But we kept on going. We explored a couple of little side tributaries that are there. And we were on our way back, and we noticed that the wind was now against us, which if you're in a canoe, you think it's not a huge deal, right? Because you're just sitting in a little canoe. And, but I can remember, I mean, I was, I was young, and I was in good shape, and I was thinking, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I kept paddling and paddling and paddling, and I kept thinking, surely I'm going to get to the other side of this lake pretty soon. And it seemed like every time I'd look, it's like, it looks like the shore is as far away as it was a little bit ago. And this is, I mean, there's no big dramatic end to the story. I'm just illustrating to you that the disciples were rowing into the wind or sailing into the wind, whichever way they had, but I'm guessing they had a rowboat. I'm guessing that's what they were using. And, uh, and they were sailing or, or, or rowing against the wind, and it was hard work. It says that it was the evening, and they began. And by the way, by the fourth watch of the night, they still hadn't made it to the other side. Now, does anyone know when the fourth watch of the night would be? Anybody know? What's that? Midnight to six? Three to six? 
from my, 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 what I've figured out, it's from between three and six. They divide the night watch, you were thinking the whole day watch, which is divided in fours, but the night watch, 12 hours, into, into four three-hour sections. And it begins at six, so six to nine, nine to midnight, midnight to three, three to six. So sometime between three in the morning and six in the morning, the wind has picked up even more, and now the waves are choppy, now there's a storm happening, and they are still not on the other side. So imagine yourself for a moment having been in a boat for, I'm going to guess, I, you know, I, I, we don't know for sure, eight hours perhaps, nine hours perhaps even, who knows how long exactly, trying to get across this lake, you've, the sea, you've been across it before by the way, all these, these men, if you read the gospel, they crisscrossed the sea many times, so it wasn't that big. They're getting nowhere, that's the point. And as they're getting nowhere, and as they're frustrated, and as they're tired of this, and as the sea gets worse and worse, and they're thinking, if we don't get there soon, we might not get there at all. And lo and behold, it says Jesus came walking to them on the water. And, you know, isn't it funny how, I interrupt myself here. Isn't it funny, like when I read this story as a kid, like to me, the big, the big thing always is Jesus walking in the water, because that's kind of a big thing, right? But when I read the story as an adult, I mean, that's a pretty big thing, because we don't normally walk on water, but it's part of the whole package. It's part of the whole story that I think is revealing a whole lot more than the fact that he can walk on water, which he can. He comes walking on the water, and they are even more frightened because I'm guessing if you're tired, perhaps a bit delirious, you've been awake all night, you've been rowing and getting nowhere, you're fed up, you're, you're probably frustrated and angry with whatever's happening out here with each other, with yourself, all this kind of stuff, and suddenly in the middle of the storm, you see someone walking in the water, which all of us know isn't possible by a human being. And they think it's a ghost. And they are afraid. And Jesus, of course, looks at them and he says, take heart. It's me, it's I. Don't be afraid. And here comes the great part of the story we love to tell, right? Because Peter, oh, bless his heart, Peter, is, he's a man of of quick word of quick action too. And I'm not speaking ill of him. I think it's a good thing. We could use a few more Peters. We could use a lot more Peters, actually. And he says, Lord, if that's really you, then tell me to come out to you. And Jesus doesn't back away for a second. He doesn't just say, well, you know, I'm God, so I can walk on water, but you, give it up. He says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat, and he starts walking over toward Jesus. But it says that as he was walking over, he began to notice that the wind was really, really blowing. And I'm sure that wasn't the only thing he was thinking about. As he begins to see the waves swelling, he begins to probably think about where he's at, which is to say on top of water, which has never before to that point known to man, sustained man. And he begins to be afraid as he's looking around himself. And he begins to sink as he's afraid. And he cries out, Lord, save me! And Jesus, of course, reaches out his hand immediately. And it says, immediately they come into the boat, and immediately the wind is quieted. Here's the story. This incredible story of Jesus coming in the middle of difficult circumstances and revealing himself. This is the place I want to take us this morning. And honestly, I really only have one big purpose for this morning's message. And I want you to know it up front. I don't want to hide what I'm, what I'm what, I, don't want to, I, don't, I don't want you to walk away and say, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure what he was trying to accomplish today. I don't want that to be true at all. I have one big purpose this morning, and that is
for every one of us, every single one of us who's here and willing to pay attention to what God wants to say through his word this morning, to have a much, 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 much bigger idea or estimation or value or thinking of who God is than what he's had or she has at this moment. In other words, I don't care if you already think God is the most amazing person in the world or you don't think twice about God or you're somewhere in between. I want at the end of today, Lord willing, by his Holy Spirit's power for you to know that God is so much more than you have thought him he ever was. That he's so much greater. He's so much more powerful. He is so much more God than you have known. Let me tell you why I have this purpose today. Because as I'm laying ourselves alongside them, I'm looking at our life situation. Chris, I don't know you, how, what age you think you might start thinking like your parents, but I'm, I think I'm a lot younger than you. I, I look at myself as a lot younger than you. No offense meant to you. <laughs> I, I don't mean any offense about that. And I find myself thinking, this is not going to be very fun, the things my children are going to have to face. It feels a little bit sometimes as I look around at some of the craziness that's unfolding around us. We're in the middle of a, a pandemic that we have, none of us here have ever experienced before, things like this. We're in the middle of an election that I don't think any of us have ever, ever experienced the stuff that's going on in this election or uh, what happened in the election or what even is going to happen. We're in the middle of all this stuff. We're in the middle of this, all this divisiveness. We're in the middle of all this hate, this anger toward each other. We're in the middle of the church realizing that many of us can't stand each other because they think differently than, than the others. We're realizing that we have so little of Jesus that it's shocking. And it feels like we've been in a boat for hours and hours and hours and rowing and rowing and rowing and getting nowhere and it just gets worse and worse outside and now there's ghosts walking on the water. It feels a little bit like that sometimes, doesn't it? And my point is not that our problems are small. You know, sometimes I think we get to the middle of this stuff we just say, ah, oh, you know, be encouraged because God is sovereign and, and he is. I'm not making light of it at all. But we say things like that and sometimes it makes it seem like we should think our problems are not that big at all. And I'm going to tell you this morning, our problems are huge. We face a daunting circumstance in this country. Our churches in America, our churches in the United States, our church here, we face daunting circumstances. Enemies from without, but I'm telling you what's going to hurt us even more is enemies within. Things that are going to tear us apart. Things that are half-hearted in their devotion. People that are half-hearted in their devotion. We face a daunting task. The thing is not that our problems are tiny or they're little and we're just making a big deal about stuff and being pansies. No, they're huge. But I want us to know that God is so much bigger. We don't make our problems look small by making them smaller. We make our problems look smaller to us in our minds and our faith because God is so much bigger than all of them. And Jesus says that this morning as he is walking towards them and they are at the end of themselves. They are overwhelmed with the lack of progress and the frustration and the bitterness that Jesus isn't with them, you know, before he could save them because he was laying in the bottom of the boat. Now he's not even there with them. He sent them off on his own. Wasn't he God? Didn't he know the storm was going to come up? And then there's a ghost walking on the water, and Jesus says these words. Take heart. Be encouraged. Let your heart gain strength again. Don't falter. Don't get weary. Don't be weak. Take heart. Stand fast. Don't be afraid. But it's really the middle phrase that's the key phrase. It 
is I. That's the reason why you should take heart and be encouraged and have some resolve again. That's the reason that despite all the circumstances around you that look like they're just falling apart, that you can say, I'm not afraid. That I can take heart and be encouraged because Jesus says, it is I. As short as that phrase is in the English, it's even shorter in the Greek. It is two words, in fact. It is I me ego. I me ego. It's a little backwards from what we're used to hearing it, but I me is the word for to be or to exist. And ego, of course, is the word for I. So in fact, here's what Jesus really is saying, because you're going to want to flip those words around. He is saying, I am. Take heart. I am. Don't be afraid. And Jesus says this multiple times in the Gospels, and the, the Pharisees always pick up on it. Whenever he says those phrases, they get really mad, because they know what he's doing. They know what he's saying. They're, he's saying that I am God that I'm equal to God, because that's who originally uses that phrase, right? He is the great I am. When Moses asked him, well, who should I say sent me? He says, I am. I am who I am. Tell them the great I am has sent you. I am. I exist. And by that he means I have always existed, and I always will exist. There is not a moment in time, in fact, it's even, not even a question of time because he's outside of time. But there's not a moment that has ever been that God has not existed. Or ever will be that God will not exist. Let's then take some time this morning. Let's take some time this morning and allow the word of God to show us who the I am is. Now we probably, many of us sitting in church, we know this stuff already. But my prayer is that you will read with me today I will make some comments, I'm sure. But the message will primarily consist of Bible texts that tell us who the I am is because Jesus just said, take heart. In the middle of the storm, when it looks like you're not gonna make it, when it looks like you might be moving backwards, when you think it's gonna get even worse, take heart. Don't be afraid because I am. Let's begin by listening to a guy named Isaiah. If you open your Bibles, I'm gonna tell you the references are because I didn't put a hand out here for you today. If you want to jot them down, if you want to spend more time with these texts later, you can do that. The first reference we're going to go to is Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to start in verse 9. Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to what Isaiah says. God's speaking through Isaiah, and we're going to hear who the I am is. God says through Isaiah, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. By the way, can I interrupt myself really quickly? I really wanted to text Merlin this week and tell him he should lead the song this morning. The song that we just sang, Behold Your God, because it comes right out of this text. And I didn't. And I thought, Lord, you can take care of it if you want that song sung. So thank you, Lord. Say to the people, I'm going to put that in here, behold your God. Verse 10, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young, are with young. Now listen carefully. Those are words of comfort. Those are words that sound really good. And I love that because that's who God is. Verse 12, who has measured 
measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Tell me, which one of us or who has ever of all humanity brought, gathered all the dust of the earth and put it on a scale to see how much it weighs? How much dust is there in the earth? <laughs> That's right. Verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. All the nations of the world are as nothing before him. All those people we have spent minutes and hours and maybe days and maybe weeks worrying about what they're going to do and how they're going to act and what they're going to say and what they're going to make us do or what they're going to try to make us do. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it is God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom, then, will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. These verses now speak to us, brothers and sisters. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? What kind of grumblings have been coming out of our mouths lately? What kind of feelings about whether no one cares about who we are or what we're doing or what's going to happen to us? Which is in, by the way, if you don't think this, is actually grumbling about God because it's, your, 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 your complaint is with him. That my right is being disregarded. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with, up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We tend to look at those last verses because they make us feel good, but it's the rest of the text I want you to focus to be on this morning, on who God is, who the I am is. Let's not say that God would not know what's happening to us, that our way is hidden from him, that my right is being disregarded, that God is somehow not giving you a fair shake. Listen, he's the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. You think he doesn't know who you are, or what's happening with you, or what you're going through? What you're feeling? 
Well, maybe if we don't want to listen to Isaiah, we should listen to a man named Jeremiah who also spoke for God. This time the words may not come out quite so nicely and with so much soft fuzziness. When Jeremiah speaks of who the I am is in Jeremiah chapter 10, this is what God says through him. Jeremiah chapter 10. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord is speaking to you. Verse 2 is where I want to start reading. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree is f- from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. No matter what God we can come up with, no matter what we can depend on, what we put in our, li- our, life, our, our, our life dependency upon, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise unto the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen, and the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work of skilled men. But, no matter how wise they think they are, no matter how good they think they are, no matter how skilled they are, no matter what they can come up with, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Oh, let's stamp that on our heads and our hearts and our brains and the very fabric of our being, friends. The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, it is God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, when God speaks, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Oh, you're not gonna like the next line. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Everything we're reading in these Old Testament prophet texts, everything of that comes out in a pat little phrase that Jesus uses. It's not, I shouldn't say a pat little phrase, but a short little phrase that Jesus uses when he looks at his disciples, afraid for their lives in the boat. Take heart. It is I. It is I. Don't be afraid. Maybe we don't want to listen to Isaiah. We don't want to listen to Jeremiah. How about we go to a guy named Job? We know the story of Job. He's among all the people we could point to. He's the guy that could say, I didn't deserve anything to happen to me. And would be pretty correct. You know, we might feel like that sometimes. I read this because I sense that we're in a time when we, in the arrogance of our own, our own 
self-righteousness say, we don't deserve the way we're being treated. We don't deserve what's happening around us. We don't deserve all this, the way that these people are coming in and taking our rights away and doing all this. We, that, that's not fair. We're, we're good, honest, hardworking people and, and we are people of faith and we have things right and we understand how things work. And, they, and I'm not telling you that, that that's not true. But reading from Job this morning reminds us, reminds me and reminds us that though we can be all correct, we can still miss God by a long shot. At the end when Job is making his case and keeps on making his case, you know how this comes. Then God speaks to Job. It's there I want to focus. Now, I don't know if I'm going to give you all the references because I'm going to jump through. He does this in Job chapter 38, 39, 40, 41. So if you want to take time to read all that sometime, you can. I'm not going to read all of it this morning, but I want to pick some selections out of it. I'm going to just remind you that when God comes and begins to ask questions, we better draw ourselves together and be prepared to listen. Chapter 38, verse 1 says, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And this is what he says. Listen. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? By the way, I would not call Job. We would not have looked at Job and said he's a man without knowledge. We would not have looked at Job and said he's got it all wrong. He doesn't have God figured out. We would not have looked at Job and said, boy, that man doesn't know what God is like. Let's make sure we understand this. Even the wisest among us, the ones who have God all figured out, the ones who everyone else looks at as an expert and knows all about God, when we come to God, God is still completely right. And he says, who is this that presumes to speak to me without knowledge? Dress for action, he says in verse 3, like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. If you want to ask all these questions, you want to protest, you want to, you want to complain about things, you want to say this is not how it should be, let me ask you some questions, and you make it known to me. For example, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? We're talking about the earth's measurements. Who determined the earth's measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or, if you don't like those questions, how about these? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no further and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Did we do that? Did you and I do that? Did some man do that? Tell the ocean where to stop? Jumping over to verse 19. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory. That you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Now you understand God is doing a little, a little tongue-in-cheek here, right? He's using a little sarcasm. It's one of the few places in Scripture I see that uh, God uses sarcasm. But he's definitely using it here. And I don't know if I'd use that word or not, but he's, he's, he's making it point obvious. You can tell me where light comes from, right? Or where dark is stored. You can go get it. Make it come when it's supposed to. Make it not come when it's not supposed to, right? You were there. You were there when light started, right? Oh, wait. None of us were. No human being was. This is the great I am we're talking about. Let me flip over. Go now to chapter 39. 
He does a whole lot of things. He talks a whole lot, of, lot more about these things. But then in verse 26 of chapter 39, he says, Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? But then he moves away from nature. He moves away from creation. He moves away from, from the things, the natural things, and he begins to talk about people. This is now in chapter 40. Job, by the way, tries to stop it. He tries to say, well, well I'm wrong. I don't want any more. And God says, no, no, we're not done yet. Chapter 40, verse 7. God says again, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Remember the question that Isaiah asked? Who has made it known, or who has advised God? God is making his point abundantly clear, right? No one has. Will you even put me in the wrong, he says in verse 8? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud, and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and embrace him. Look on everyone who is, let me read verse 12 now. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their, face, uh, their faces in the world below. Then I will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And my friends, we have now come to the crux of God. Is, is the, 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 the pivotal moment of what God is, is bringing about to Job. Now, there's some more things he says. He keeps on going, so it's not the end of it. But as he begins to address what Job is talking about with other people, you have to understand that the bottom of Job's complaint is this idea that people came and destroyed his life. And God was apparently okay with it. And we today might be asking ourselves, it's looking like people are coming and going to destroy your lives. And somehow it seems like God is okay with that, and I can't quite figure that out. And God says, if you want to harbor that complaint with me, if you believe that's not fair, you believe I'm not right in this, that's what he asked, right? He said, are you going to condemn me so that you are right? Are you going to say I'm right, which, which means God is wrong in this? If that's the case, then you put on majesty and dignity. You, you clothe yourself with glory. You pour out the overflowing of your anger and you make sure that all those who are proud and have raised themselves up from where they should be, you take care of them. You destroy them. You bring them back down. And he says, you bind their faces in the world below. You send, you send them to where they're supposed to go. If you can do that, God says, then I will also acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. And here we're brought to this unfortunate truth that we must recognize this morning. All the things that cause anxiety in us, I don't know if you're going to agree with this statement or not. I hope you will. All the things that cause anxiety within us, all the things that steal our peace, all the things that are causing us to fret and worry and, and get frustrated and have all kinds of discussions with people and all kinds of accusations against people and all kinds of worry. All of those things come because deep down inside, we know that we can't save ourselves and we want to be able to. It's outside of our control. We can't stop it. Can I tell you, my friends, the outcome of our presidential election is not 
the worst thing we need to be safe from. What the people in the pews next to you do or don't do that really gets your goat is not the worst thing that, this, that we need to be safe from. This great pandemic, which has all kinds of stories out there about what, and we don't, probably very few of us know what's actually true about all kinds of stuff. The end result of which, of course, it could mean death for some people, it certainly has. But that's not the greatest thing we need to be saved from. Deep down inside, what's interesting, the pandemic brings this out, by the way, but deep down inside, is the knowledge that someday our lives will end in death. The Bible's clear why that happens. Because God, though he created everything perfect, we rebelled against him. And when we rebelled against him, and when we looked and ate from, well, we didn't do it, Adam did it, but we inherited from him, and we've been doing it ever since, don't kid yourself. Where we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we disobey God's commands, we sin against him, that brings about death. And we live with that reality. And the worst thing about it is we can't do anything about it. God is saying, if you can do all those other things, then I will acknowledge that your hand can save yourself. But if it has not been made abundantly clear yet this morning, my friends, the reality is we can't, right? That there is a vast, 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 vast difference between God and us. Between the I am and us. Let me read some other words for you this morning. We're going to go back to Isaiah because as we are reading this, as we're acknowledging who God is, as we are hopefully letting it sink in and acknowledging and agreeing with the fact that we are not able to save ourselves, we are not able to change the circumstances, we are not able to do anything about this, the situation we find ourselves in, and I don't want to be defeatist, I'm not, we can, we certainly can and should be praying, but we, it's not our arm that is going to save us, we're not going to, we're not going to march to Washington and fix it. I submit to you that even Oliver protesting not in Washington but anywhere else is not going to fix it. And not to mention, I just told you that that's not even our biggest problem. <laughs> our biggest problem is us, our sinfulness. What we're seeing out there is but a reflection of the heart of every man that every one of us needs to deal with. So let me read these words to you from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. God's still speaking. The great I am, the one that Isaiah, I mean, by the way, th these chapters all connect together. Again, I can't read them, but if you would start reading in Isaiah chapter 40, it goes all the way through 43, 44, 45, and he, and he un unveils himself and what he's about to do. It's all one connected text, but I'm going to pick, pick out some of these things. I can't read all of it this morning. Isaiah chapter 42, here's what he says. Behold my servant whom, I'm uphold, whom, I, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Remember, we just read back in chapter 40 that even use, all of us humans, we grow faint. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, God says. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Friends, this servant he is talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. It is the servant whom he upholds, the one who he has put his spirit upon, and he will, his soul delights in him. God's soul delights in his son. Of course he does. He said that out loud, right? When he was baptized, when he was in the transfiguration, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He delights in him. He brought him forth to bring justice to the nations, but he will do so as Look at what he says first. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And here's what Jesus came to do. And he himself acknowledged this. To bring, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. My question to you this morning is, who is that? Who are those people that are blind? Those people that are prisoners? Those people that sit in darkness. I haven't given you much chance to interact this morning as I preach, but here would be an appropriate time. Who are those people? Who are those people that are imprisoned, who are, whose eyes are blind, who sit in darkness? I see one or two of you doing this. Who are they? Yes, you used the word, it was us. That's good if, you, if you've received Christ. But it's us. That's us. I told you already, like we're the disciples sitting in the boat and we've been trying and trying and trying and trying and we're frustrated and we're fed up and it looks even worse and worse and worse and now the ghost starts coming walking on the water to get us. It's us. We are the ones who are blind. We are the ones who need help. We are the ones who are imprisoned by our own sin, by the stuff going on around us. We're the ones that Jesus came to set free. Not, and not just us. A light for the nations. Entire, the entirety of humanity, right? I mean, when I say we are the ones, I don't mean just we exclusively. I mean all of us are. Humans are. He made him to be a light for the nations. This is this Jesus. The one that we read about in Matthew 14. Let's go back to Matthew 14 because there's one more thing I want to say this morning before we bring this to a closure. This is the one, the servant that God was talking about in Isaiah that came walking on the water to them and said those words, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then we spent all this time this morning, hopefully not in vain, 
in recognizing that God is incredible as the I am. He is so much bigger than what we have even thought of. He's so much greater than we've even allowed him to be. He is so much more and stronger and wiser and more perfect and more holy and more just and more right and more merciful and more loving and more compassionate than we have thought him to be. But I want you to notice something. When Jesus makes this amazing statement that he's the I am, and if it did anything like this in their minds as they were sitting in a boat, and they thought back, I'm not saying they did, but if they would have thought back to all this great stuff that Isaiah said, and Jeremiah said, and Job said about what God said to him, and did all those things, and they began to think, (coughs) excuse me, that this is the great I am on the water here. Let me ask you something. Has their situation changed at all? Has their situation changed at all? Are they not still in a boat that's being rocked by waves and wind? Storm's still there. Jesus is out there in the water, but they're in the boat. Knowing all these great things about the I am doesn't change a thing in your life. What happens after that declaration through Peter is what changes the outcome. It's what will change your life. It's what will make all the stuff that's happening not like get smaller, but you to really experience the I am. For what happens? What does the text say? Peter says, now it says if it's really you, but my sense is the question is if you're really the I am. If you're really the I am, then tell me to come to you. Peter is willing, by the way, to put his feet where he says his belief is. That's an important thing, by the way, because many of us know lots about God and know lots about what the Bible says and know lots of right answers, but we're not always very willing to put our feet where our belief is. And Jesus simply looks at Peter and says one word, this word right here, come, come. And all kinds of things take place in our understanding of what's happening, all kinds of things. First of all, that Jesus wants us to come, that he's inviting us. That, but second of all, that it takes some effort on our part. You know, you can hear this sermon this morning, and you can think, that's amazing. God is so amazing. And you can stay as far away from God as you were the moment you walked through the doors. That's your choice. You can stay in the boat if you want. The boat's, it's rocking. It looks like, excuse the phrase, looks like we're going to hell in a handbasket in our lives. None of that changes just because we know that Jesus is the I am. But somewhere, somewhere, we have to step out of that boat and hear Jesus saying, come to me, come. And we have to decide if we're gonna do that or not. Will we actually let or make or allow our feet to follow what our faith says we believe? Our mouth says we believe, I should put it that way. Because I don't think it's really true faith if we're not doing it. Now, I'm going to do something rather unconventional. And by that I mean, I brought you to this 
And I, whatever. I, I've hopefully laid the table, set the table for you to respond. But I'm gonna tell you, <laughs> it is not my intention to open up the altar this morning and have you come up front. And I'm very uh, intentional about that. I hope you want to. But I want you to spend more time this afternoon. I want you to spend more time centering your mind the rest of today on how great God is, on how amazing he is. I want those things we read this morning to continue to soak in. I want you to be convinced that if you will not step out of the boat and go to Jesus, then you will sink. And you must be convinced because I can tell you, as scary as it looks for the disciples in the boat, only one of them got out because it's a whole lot scarier out there in the water. <laughs> right? None of us survive in the water. We can't walk on water. We all know that, right? I want you to decide and to spend time contemplating. This is not a hurried thing. This is not a, this is not a rash decision. I want you to spend time this afternoon contemplating how great God really is, how amazing he really is, how much bigger than anything you've ever thought he might be, he really is. And I want you to come back tonight. We're going to finish the rest of this text tonight. Or talk more about this text, I should say. And I don't really finish it, but talk more about the text tonight. I do want you to come back tonight. I think the Lord wants to keep instructing us and teaching us from this text. And I want you to be able, willing to respond in whatever way that looks. But we'll do it tonight. Why don't you stand? Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you have been able to penetrate our minds and our hearts this morning with the word that was read, and that you will keep penetrating, that you will keep piercing, you will keep unrolling, keep unveiling, keep piling in these truths about our Father, about God who created the heavens and the earth, about us and who we are, and how much we can't save ourselves and we need him. How much Jesus, we need Jesus. And contemplating that question, will we really come to Jesus? Are we really, to, really willing to step out of the boat and go to Jesus where he's at? Or do we just want Jesus to save us right where, where we're at? I pray that you'd keep us in that, that you'd hold us there, that you'd build in us this desire, this impetus, this knowledge that we have no other hope but to come out of the, our boat and into Jesus. He is the ark you've given us to be saved. I pray for every heart here today. I pray for the seeds that were planted that we would have hearts of good soil, that the soil, the seeds can go in and can bring forth fruit, that they would not be snatched away by the enemy, by distractions, by the cares of this world, but that we would come, allow you to Work in our hearts. And Jesus, I counted a privilege this morning not only to say your name and to proclaim who you are, but in some sense to join you. So many times we want to, we want to make it so easy to follow you, and yet when we look at your words in the gospel, many times you you caution people. You said, do you really know what you're choosing? You have to count the cost. 
you have to really think about it. You have to really want to know what I'm saying to, to peel apart the parables. And this morning, I feel a bit like that, God. That Jesus, we've come, we, we know we need to come to you, and yet you're holding us off a bit. And you're saying, I want you to really think about it. I want you to really want this. I want you to really pursue this. I believe you have something in store for that. I don't know what that is, but I want to honor you and let you have your way with us. I praise you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that you would go today filling, filled with the Spirit and allowing the Spirit to continue working in your heart and in your head and come back tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace today.